0: Why don't we go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather today. Again, to learn more about the culture around us and how we might thoughtfully, winsomely, faithfully, and effectively engage it. But we're especially grateful that after learning about these things, we have the opportunity to gather around your throne of grace as your people. And here you, our King, address us through your ambassador, Pastor Brett, with your word of hope. Lord, we live in a world a lot like Ecclesiastes. We are constantly surveying the wasteland. And apart from Christ, that can often lead us to despair. But we know Christ came into that wilderness. He tussled with the devil as our second Adam. In a sense, by his grace, he began to replant blooms and blossoms, and we look forward to the day when one when what was once a garden and now looks a lot like wilderness is remade into a new garden. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, welcome, everybody. So uh, at one point, Pat asked me for outlines, and right now, because of my frenetic schedule, I'm notoriously bad with this. So let me go ahead and introduce what I'm going to talk about today and kind of give you the broad outline so that you're tracking. Uh, so today I'm going to be, again, jumping ahead a little bit. I was going to be talking about the role of the home and its importance in engaging the culture. But instead we're going to be introducing what I call experimental apologetics. Uh, this is in a sense, the method that I use to engage the culture around us. Uh, to engage my soldiers when I was in the church to engage people in the community. So I'll be introducing uh, this subject and what it is. I'm going to be talking about some of its key characteristics. Uh, I'm going to talk about the format. Like, what does a conversation look like? like so how does that proceed? And then the, some of the effects of this method, uh, what it looks like for relationships, for making people feel loved, listened to, etc. So first in introducing this concept. Uh, imagine this happened with some of you too. I you know, Augustine once described in essence having three different conversions. I think it was he considered his baptism to be one, there was the intellectual acceptance of the faith, and then there was that you know when he really came to believe it heart deep. Now obviously we don't think there's three different conversions. But I think it's a helpful thing to think about at times. Uh, for me, I became a believer in pretty dramatic fashion coming into high school. I would wear Bible verse necklaces around my neck in my public high school one of the most progressive areas in the country, trying to tell everybody I could about Jesus. Uh, and that was just written into my DNA. I was often annoying about it. I had one girl chew me out in the middle of a class because I was coming at her so hard. I uh, but I was also really shallow in my faith, you know. I, you know, everybody's talking about Romans eight twenty eight. You know, God has a purpose. Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? We had all these power verses uh, that we leaned upon, uh, and I was really shallow in my faith, which really prepared me poorly uh, for my supposedly Christian college, where my young, shallow belief in the scriptures was constantly attacked. Uh, thankfully, I remembered, even as a shallow believer, what it was like to read Romans with illumined eyes. When I first became a believer, I could—I'd sit in the corner of a hotel I was at at one point, and just I couldn't stop reading. All of a sudden, these things that had been little children's songs became real, and I couldn't get enough. And because that instinctive love for God's word and what it meant—it was life to me—I uh, was able to withstand those blows in college. And then in seminary, I in a sense had my intellectual conversion. I went to Westminster uh, Seminary, California, uh, where both Brett and Brian went. I saw every professor, regardless of denomination, standing unequivocally upon the word of God as truth, as life, as hope. I saw what it was like to see Christ presented throughout all the Old Testament. And all of a sudden I realized uh, this isn't just Christ kind of airdropping in the middle of history. This is this gradual, unfolding story of Christ's work as he works to change the course of history, radically renovate our lives, and assert his primacy as king over this world. A story of love. And so I experienced my intellectual conversion there and how I can love Christ with my mind in a sense, have a mind set on fire for the Lord as well as a heart. I remember one Christmas break, coming back home, and going out for drinks with my best friend from high school. He was always a staunch atheist. His dad was a very well-known psychologist in the DC area. Uh, He remembers when I became a believer. We were friends at the time, going into high school, and how dramatically I changed, totally veered in a different direction. And he said, you know, let's get together, and let's debate religion. Let's debate Christianity. And something just about that turned me off. I didn't even like the tone of it. I mean, I'm postmodern. I'm part and parcel of my age. So let's not debate this. Let's discuss it. Let's ask lots of questions, have a good conversation, and see where we go. In essence, same general agenda, but like, let's let's lay down our arms uh, and make this more of a conversation. And I employed an apologetic method that I had learned at Westminster, California, called presuppositionalism. Uh, I'll probably give a very fuzzy explanation for it. But in essence, you're showing why every foundation out there, every worldview is insufficient for explaining the way in which we exist and live in this world. Uh, People operate on ideas of order and justice and the dignity of mankind, things that we just take for granted. And usually they have no explanation for it. Uh, There's no foundation underneath it. It's a part of this method is to kind of show, hey, that place where you're supposed to be standing is actually a giant hole, but also showing that only Christianity sufficiently explains the way in which we live and operate in this world. It is only a real foundation. in fact, most people are assuming certain basic Christian beliefs in order to live the way in which they live. Uh, But a lot of it involves digging into what one's worldview is. It bypasses a lot of the superficial debates and gets at why do you believe what you believe. And I remember going to this bar with this good friend of mine and just peppering him with questions for an hour or two. I was like, annoying kid in the back seat, why? 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 But doing it because I genuinely wanted to know. And he start trying to lay bare, like, so why do you say that men are inherently good? Well, because of this reason, that reason. Now, why do you think that's true? I, I gave him the mic practically the whole time. Uh, and we ra- found numerous places where he ba- would say, basically, blanket assumptions. And we found out that's what hit the bottom of his worldview was. Assumptions about why the world is the way it is and how we're to live as a result. Uh In turn, he would ask me questions about what I believe. And I got to unpack some of the Christian faith for him. It's probably way less sophisticated than it sounds now. But at the end of it, he said, Steve, that is the best conversation I've ever had about religion. Thank you. He felt loved. He felt listened to. And we went deep. We were contending at the very basic level with regard to beliefs. So I fell in love with this idea of presuppositionalism by showing what he was presupposing, by showing what I presuppose what I, at the bottom of my worldview and interacting there. Uh, but there was another thing I learned in that conversation, too, and I've learned since. Again, we are not just minds with feet. We're not just brains with feet. And it wasn't simply about a battle of ideas. Uh, there was a context of a relationship. There's experiences that went behind that. I was with him when his parents got divorced in high school and walked with him that whole time. And so there were all these other layers there that tied into that. It wasn't enough to simply rationally expose the faultiness of someone's worldview. It requires us to dig into somebody's past uh, and figure out why, and just kind of show them, based on the information they already know, why their worldview is failing. And what they actually need. And so that is kind of the segue into this idea of experimental apologetics. Now here's what I mean by it. So apologetics is really the defense or the vindication of the Christian faith. It's not just the defense. We're trying to to make it uh, show that it prevails. It is the prevailing belief. Uh, Now when we talk about... uh, So I originally was going to call this experiential apologetics. Engaging one's experience uh, with the gospel in order to defend and vindicate the faith. My good friend Phil Proctor, uh, back in the D.C. area, I suggested experimental instead of experiential. It's a Puritan term. I think it sounds a little less subjective. I'm not just trying to play around with somebody's emotions. Uh, I'm trying to intentionally use their emotions and their experiences uh, to defend and proclaim the gospel. So experimental apologetics. In essence, you're using someone's experiences and emotions. You're engaging their experience and emotions to change their belief system, or at least to engage their belief system, if not change it. In other words, the gateway to people's thoughts are their experiences and their emotions. We can't just go straight to the thoughts. We've got to go through the route, really, in the way in which they think today. Experience, as we talked about the first week, experience and emotion are king right now. And it's much more important, and this is a given um, a psychological principle nowadays too, what someone goes through oftentimes is not nearly as important as how they feel about it. Uh, it's often their, their feelings and their experiences that are shaping their beliefs, and then their beliefs that they derive out of those emotions and experiences in turn shape their emotions and experiences. Uh, so that is, in essence, what this method is: using their experiences and emotions, in a sense, in, in a sense to engage and perhaps even change their thoughts by God's grace. It's again, it's like old school presuppositionalism, but it's recognizing reason is no longer king. Experiences. Jake and talked about. Uh, consecrating the culture and engaging thoughts in a sense, removing obstacles to the gospel wherever we go. And that's what this is doing, but it's realizing most of those obstacles now are at a very instinctive, visceral level. It's not up here. People don't care about why a good God would allow suffering. They care about why God would not intervene to stop what was happening in my house growing up. Why Why did God not keep my daddy at home? These sorts of things... Still, a a lot of similarities in terms of the struggle, but a lot more personal, a lot more emotional, a lot more experiential. What is my motive for this method? Love. Sounds cliche. What does love even mean in today's culture? We have a biblically informed concept of love. But it's important to recognize I'm not starting out as an antagonist here. When I engage somebody... And I do it because I love them and I care about knowing their story. I love the image of God as it's reflected in them. I count it a win at so many points when there's something good going on in their lives uh, that's a reflection of God's common grace. Uh, so maybe they're really struggling with things within their marriage or outside of their marriage, but if they're young and they're married, it's a win. I rejoice over over those things. I love seeing the image of God reflected. There's goodness there. There's common grace. We talked about the first week. uh, One false assumption we make about the culture is that there's no element of truth, beauty, or goodness there. There is. The image of God is still reflected in many points. I also love hearing about and engaging their brokenness. I know that sounds a little silly, I love it because if they recognize that they are broken, that, or that something in their world is broken, uh, then they're recognizing another fundamental truth about this world. That this world is fallen and broken. When somebody why am, why am I so upset that my spouse is leaving? Why wouldn't you be? God created this ordinance. God created you to be in these relationships as a reflection of his love for his people. Why wouldn't you be upset? The fact that you are upset bears testimony to the truth of this world as God created it and the brokenness and the fallenness of mankind. I love to listen. This is I know it's ironic for me, the bubbly extrovert who oftentimes can't shut up. I love handing the mic to the person I'm talking to. I just was away at a chaplain's conference the past two days with a bunch of senior chaplains talking about a lot of these same issues. There's a retired chaplain who lives in this area who had been chaplain for 32 years. And he's asking me and another young chaplain so, what's changed in the culture and what does apologetics look like now? And we talked about this idea of fundamentally handing the mic over to the person we're engaging. He was shocked. He's like when I was raised, evangelism explosion, four spiritual laws, Romans Road, Like we came in there in a sense, you know, gun a blazing. Uh, we had the mic. We were giving the presentation and they were listening to it. And nowadays, other people nowadays people need to have the mic put in front of them. I love to listen. Every little bit that my soldiers or people out in the community tell me gives me information that I can engage with the gospel. Every tidbit of information they give me is helpful. I want to learn as much as I can. And I'm going to question, and I'm going to question, and I'm going to question, and I'm going to paraphrase. Constantly trying to sum up what it is they just told me to make sure I am tracking with it. It makes some feel listened to. This is called active listening, by the way. Uh, but it also helps me to own what it is I just heard and not what I think I've heard with my own bias. It's lots of questions, lots of paraphrasing. So the motive for all this is love. Again, this is this old school school of thought that has been the dominant apologetic method in OPC, presuppositionalism, but with a slightly different approach. Uh, again, it is not simply engaging someone's reason or thoughts. The focus is on experience. Uh, so what is presuppositionalism saying it originally meant that people live lives inconsistent with their worldview. In essence, they have lots of cliches, tidy explanations, but usually lack the most basic answers to life, to life's most basic questions. And they're often presupposing a Christian worldview underneath a lot of the way in which they live. Uh, only Christianity makes sense of the way in which we live. Uh, human dignity, why do we care about that? <laughs> Brokenness, why do we recognize that if that's just an organic part of an evolving world or if it's just an illusion, as the Eastern religions claim? Uh, justice, why do we care about that? At Chappie Hour one week, what right did we have to punish the Nazis? You know what we eventually concluded, or at least the other people in the group concluded? Um, uh, the spoils of victory. They say set an example For other people who mess with us, a deterrent. Uh, Really, just because we got to. Uh, No one said, well, there is justice to be maintained here. Everybody cares about social justice nowadays, and nobody actually knows why we should care about social justice, uh, why we should care about justice in general. Uh, The Bible explains all these things, it gives you a place to fit these things. Uh, The biblical worldview. This past week at Chappie Hour, oh, one of my soldiers just got a DUI. Now, this sort of stuff happens quite often. It's JBLM. There's something about the gray skies, the lack of deployments, uh, lack of vitamin D. Probably a lot of factors that contribute to this. uh, But JBLM has an especially high rate of DUIs. Guys, why do we fall upon these coping mechanisms? Why do we have coping mechanisms? Well, to help us cope. What are you trying to cope with? For all of them, it's suffering, it's trauma in their past. Oh, doesn't that that just fit into your belief system? Don't you have a way of processing this? You remember that fourth question that kind of determines whether or not someone's happy? Do they have a worldview that enables them to process suffering and death? They don't. They have nowhere to fit it in their belief system. And so they have to rely upon a coping mechanism. And virtually all of my soldiers do this. They have to have coping mechanisms because they have nowhere to put it. What do I do with the fact my dad abandoned us when we were little? What do I do with the fact uh, that my boyfriend impregnated me and then left? All these sorts of things. You know, we talked a little bit about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and how they helped process their own wounds for more, both of them lost basically all their best friends in World War One. Is it totally surprising that each of them wrote these wonderful sagas, *Lord of the Rings*, *Chronicles of Narnia*, that took a world of pain and brokenness? Remember a land where it's always winter but never Christmas, a land where you're being hunted down by orcs and whoever else. But each with a moral goal at the end. Both of these—they were not to direct. Uh, allegories, uh, like, say, Pilgrim's Progress. But both of them were meant, in a sense, to mimic or echo elements of the Christ story, uh, of the biblical worldview. And there they fit their suffering from the trenches. For example, the swamps with the bodies uh, that Frodo and Sam passed through, like all these dead bodies in them. Uh, Tolkien later said that was a reflection of my experience in the Battle of the Somme. Were over the course of a month about a million soldiers for casualties, by the thousands, each day, uh, by the tens of thousands. Uh, And so they had a place to put it. Most people do not have a place to put it. Instead, they have coping mechanisms, which always, always fall apart. It requires more and more self-medication through alcohol, through sex through all sorts of other means to try to cope, and it doesn't work. Uh, it ends up in incredible acts of self-destruction, self-sabotage. and uh, never satisfies. All it does, this, all these soldiers recognize this. They all said it to a person this past Thursday night. It's just kicking the can down the road. It's just helping me set it aside. It does nothing to help you heal, to process, to grow. It just keeps you holding on. Uh, Basically, life is about survival. And that's where most of them are. I think I've mentioned this before. Pretty much everyone out there right now is a nihilist. They believe life is meaningless. And they cover it over with hedonism. Exorbitant pleasures. This is what we need to get. We often just see the hedonism and think, what are all these people thinking? All these reckless, immoral behaviors These are all coping mechanisms. They are not intentional acts of rebellion. They're coping mechanisms to deal with nihilism because life is meaningless and they're trying to grab for straws each and every day to get by another day. There's incredible despair and cynicism out there as soon as you get past the coping mechanisms. So a few other traits of this idea of experimental apologetics. One, and this is true for all of us, You can't do apologetics without counseling, and vice versa. You can't do counseling without apologetics. If you go straight for someone's belief system, you've probably lost them right off the bat. Here's what I mean by counseling. I'm not talking about going and getting your master's in counseling. I'm not talking about learning a lot about psychoanalysis. By counseling, I mean basic tending of the heart. It means you're getting into somebody's life and their background and their experiences, recognizing that that's often where you're going to be able to engage them with the gospel. We do not just come up with our belief systems willy-nilly. They're often radically shaped by our backgrounds. This is a point I often make to my soldiers. Sigmund Freud, the great atheist uh, uh, psychoanalyst from the 20th century, said that God is merely a projection of our father figures. He said this back in the day when people still had father figures. Uh, That our fathers make us feel protected while we're growing up, and we get out into the real world, and we realize how scary it is, and so we invent God to to help us continue to feel safe. I tell my soldiers, there's some truth in what Freud said. There's a connection. Now flip it. Our fathers are a projection to us of God. They are meant to reflect to us. And our parents are, broadly speaking, God's love, his justice, his mercy, his authority. And when they betray that, especially, they start twisting our view of God. And some of you probably have these experiences. Some of the brokenness in my background, I'm always going to struggle on the heart level with the idea of an involved God, a God who's providentially related to me at all points, a God of love. I know these things. I still, I have that shaped theology of my background that continues to hinder that. And so we recognize you can't talk about somebody's beliefs without talking about their background. It is virtually impossible. Again, you don't need a counseling degree for this. This usually just means a good cup of coffee and a long conversation and digging into somebody's past. Another fundamental key trait And I think it would make sense to you at this point. The primary battleground is no longer philosophical. It's psychological. Back in the day, we came at people as if it was all a matter of philosophy, the battle of ideas. And it's not that anymore. People do not have self-conscious worldviews. They do not care about moral reasoning or rationalizing. Uh, It is contending with the demons in one's own heart. It is very subjective. And again, it's not wrestling with a problem of evil, it's wrestling the problem of evil in my own life. It's primarily psychological, not philosophical. And again, we're not talking about just dealing with people's felt needs here. This is not christianity light. This is coming in fully armed with the Christian worldview and engaging the battle right now at, in, that is constantly wreaking havoc in their lives. Going to war with them and for them. One other key trait here I am not fundamentally threatened by others' challenges. This is where God's sovereignty for us as Calvinists is so important. I believe God is sovereign. I do not have to twist somebody's arm right here and now to try to get them to make a commitment to Christ, to do our own Protestant formula, like the Roman Catholic formula of penance of the sinner's prayer. Just say the words of poof, you're a Christian. I don't think we need to do that. I believe that God is sovereign. Uh, Can we appeal to people's emotions? Can we, in a sense, impress the urgency upon people? Yes. But one, I am not threatened when I engage other people. I tell my soldiers, if you think Christianity is crap, you tell me. I don't want the Sunday school facade. Don't BS me with these little niceties. Shh, the chaplain's coming. Better clean up our language. No. Now you're lying to me, and I'm insulted. Uh, be real with me. No Sunday school facades. Tell me that you think it's a joke. But I'm going to ask you why. And I expect you to explain it to me. We'll have a good conversation about it. And figure I'm probably going to come back at you with why I think you're wrong. Uh, I encourage that. I am not threatened. And I'm willing to say, you know what? That's a good point. I already know what to say in response right now. Let me think over that. And people give me that grace because they see how I care about them. I'm giving them that grace, but I'm not trying to pin them to the mat. I'm not trying to prove them wrong. It's not a Fox News or MSNBC debate. Uh, I'm not looking to win here. I'm looking to see uh, Christ shared. Uh, and also, I have time. I have time. Again, I'm not trying to put on the sale right away. Well, oftentimes, it's a nine-inning ball game, and I'm going to continually come up to bat. And I respect that. In fact, I would say as a general rule, and we're about to go to the format of how this works in a conversation. It is usually improper, I know this sounds weird, it is usually improper to engage beliefs in the first conversation. If we do that, we're usually missing the mark. If we do that, people usually feel disrespected and unloved. They are not customers, and we are not selling them a product. Uh, They want to know that they are cared about uh, before they start receiving information from you. They want to know they are listened to. And guess what? You put the mic in front of them, eventually they'll usually hand it back to you. I have time. And I'm not going to get at the gospel every conversation. Now, oftentimes I'll make a point of it right at the end, try to... What I'll usually do is I tell people I'm, in a sense, leaving them a bug in their brains. (laughs) Something's going to nag at them. Other people have caught it a pebble in their shoe. Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason, he has a couple of really good books, uh, Defending the Christian Faith. His is a a more rational, intellectual version as well. But he talks about leaving a pebble in somebody's shoe. Uh, That annoying thing that they constantly have to pay attention to. I try to do that. Uh, Make them question some aspect of their worldview. Make them see how actually Christianity makes sense of this. For example, Christianity alone actually provides an explanation for suffering and why it exists in this world, human brokenness. No other worldview really does. We give a how it started, what God has done about it, what he's going to do about it, what he is doing about it. No other worldview does. So if you start to... Ex- take out a little bit of their coping mechanisms, the things that they're using to try to explain away these things. You can start to show them why, really, only Christianity works. Uh, Of course, it works because it's true. Now, basic format of conversation. The first thing, almost every time, and there's exceptions, uh, if you're on an airplane with somebody, it's a one-time shot, you might expedite this whole process. Uh, if you're with a loved one on their deathbed, I think most all of us have unbelieving family members, and they're on their deathbed, you might expedite this process. If you already know someone really well, you might expedite this process. General format. You start with basics. These are three Bs. You start with basics. And that should really be the focus of, a, of your initial conversation or conversations. Uh, who are you? Where are you from? Uh, you're from Texas, uh, the Republic of Texas. You know, slipping slip a little humor. Uh, where are you from in Texas? Probably Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, or Austin. Pretty good chance it's one of those four. Uh, if it's San Antonio or Austin, cool. I've been there. I love those places. I miss the Tex-Mex. Uh, are you from Dallas? Uh, I'm sorry. I hate their football team. I hope you do too. Uh, again, lots of humor, lots of jokes. Uh, are you married? Yeah, I am explain how to make small talk. You have to tell the introverts to do this. Uh, thank you, I appreciate that. You're using humor too. Uh, but talk about family. Are you married? Were you married? Uh, do you have kids? Do they live with you? All these questions you have to ask individually. You can't assume any of them based on the other. Because nowadays, as you guys know, the family's a shambles. A lot of these soldiers have been married a time or two. Uh, A good number of them have kids in different places around the country. But again, the army is not very atypical here. In many ways, we're actually playing catch up to the culture. Just like the Midwest and South, we're on a headlong race to catch up to the paganistic worldview of the predominant culture. It's just a matter of how long. Uh, And so yeah, we're making this small talk. So talking about family, and this family piece is especially important. Do you Isn't Prez from from my classmate at Westminster, Fletcher Matandika from Malawi? Americans always ask what it is you do. What do you do for work? In Malawi, and I think most other countries in the world, uh, how is your family? And I think they're actually, not to make an unequivocal moral judgment there, but I think they're right. That is the more important question to ask. And so you're doing basics. And spend time in that basics. There's so much good stuff there. What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? After a while, you can begin to make pretty good guesses about it. If you're from Wisconsin, you're probably going to like hunting and fishing. If you're from D.C., you guys, if you did have family dinners, you were probably talking about politics. And you can start to joke about these things, these cultural stereotypes, and have fun with them. Uh, But yeah, family, hobbies. Is this... For soldiers, this is your first assignment right now. You start talking about work. What is it you do for work? How long have you been in the Northwest? What do you think about the Northwest? Oh, you think it sucks? Well, okay, Well, we'll probably get better. Just take your vitamin D tablets. Uh, oh, by the way, don't wait for the rain to stop before you go outside. That's what all these soldiers are doing, including their kids. Oh, we're just going to let the kids play video games until the rain stops. <laughs> Nine months later... You got the most pudgy, pasty kid I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> but you make this small talk. You have this banter. What are you doing when you have this small talk? Are you starting to develop a little bit of a bond? Uh, more lighthearted, starting to develop a little bit of trust. So now you've got that superficial trust. Conversation two, even though it's usually not this neat, is background. Even now, we're not going straight at beliefs, because we can't, most people don't even know their own beliefs, and we are not going to understand their beliefs until we understand their background, because oftentimes, for example, at one point, I had a a soldier, he's one of our few Muslim soldiers, and he came in my office, he uh, came in because he was having very disturbing thoughts, uh, thoughts that, you know, concerned us, and he came in and started talking about his worldview. He can't trust anyone in this world, paranoid. And so he never lets himself open up to anybody. Uh, I told him, wait a second. Let me just get straight. Uh, You can't trust anyone in this world. Relationships don't offer that that sense of meaning uh, or love or hope. So what I'm hearing from you is you're not actually Muslim. You're a nihilist. He's like, what? I'm like, let me explain this. Here's some basic beliefs of Islam. Here's some basic beliefs of, of a nihilist. He's like, you know what? As a matter of fact, you're right. I guess, realistically, I am a nightlist. What he identified at, as was very different than what he actually, on the ground level, believed. Background is so important. Conversation number two is background. So perhaps in the basics, we've, oftentimes the basics, and people are really upfront with this nowadays. By the way, privacy is dead, and for good reason. Like, let's slap that last nail in the coffin. My home is my castle and get rid of that whole privacy culture altogether. Uh, privacy has been the death, one of the death knells of American community. Uh, and my home is not my castle. What happens to the home does not need to stay in the home. The church, by the way, is more important than the home. Weighty assertion? It's true. Uh, especially now, home is often not safe. Privacy is dead. And people, let's say 35 or so and below, know this. And so people are actually incredibly open. Uh, did you grow up with a divorce? Yes. Did you grow up with abuse? Yes. Uh, one day I went around a table at, uh, for, a, for an event at uh, Sam Adams Brewhouse on post. What is one thing that we should know about your past that would help us better understand you in the present? How many times did I hear people say assault? Right in the middle of Sam Adams Brewhouse. Uh, they'll throw it on the table. But background, usually in the basics conversation, you're free to already ask, hey, are your parents still together? Where do they live? Or where do each of them live? Uh, And so you can kind of touch the top of that iceberg there in the basics conversation, but especially in background. By the way, you mentioned to me your parents aren't together anymore. When did that happen? What was that like? What was life like before that? What was life like after that? Life before that usually gets covered up. When you've experienced trauma, you usually forget the beautiful things from your childhood. Before that, did you watch Saturday morning cartoons? Did you eat sugar cereal? What are things you loved and enjoyed? Uh, What was it like when that happened? What did life become like after that? And again, that's just one example. Even your more normal families, which are becoming increasingly rare, normal... There are those sorts of things. A solid Christian household. What was your relationship with your dad like? Your mom? Uh, what was it like going to church each week? How are you schooled? These questions, all of them, get as much information about their past as possible. In a sense, these conversations can last forever. There's always more information to be had. It is, you know, We have something called Land Nav in the Army. You're exploring the terrain. Uh, using you know a compass, shooting an astros, I stink at that. I love doing that with people's hearts and minds. Go into their background. Let's talk about whatever we can find. Usually, they will take you directly to the most important pieces, and not only the most important pieces and events, but just as important, how they feel about those events, which you need to be paying close attention to as well. So, background. Finally, third conversation, you get to third B beliefs. That's when you get to beliefs. And my, a lot of my soldiers know I follow this format. Hey guys, you know which week this is. Uh, I told you last time this is what we were going to talk about this time. Uh, what belief system did your parents raise you in? Did your parents actually believe that? What did they teach you about it? Did they do anything to reinforce it? Did they take you to a church or place of religious worship? How did they model it? So important. How did they model it? Uh, and so exploring all that in their childhood, uh, what was it like? A lot of these soldiers going to church week after week after week with a hypocrite. Uh, somebody who played the pious southerner and you know the bow tie at church Uh, maybe a deacon, everybody respected them, and at home is wearing a white beater and beating their wife. Uh, What was that like? Uh, And so they taught you what to believe. How did they model that? What did that want you to do with those beliefs? Uh, Most people are leaving the church, who are leaving the church in the Midwest and South, which I think at this point are most people, especially in those two areas. It's actually growing a little bit in the progressive areas of our country. Christianity is. It's in the conservative areas right now where it's dying the most. Uh, and a lot of people are leaving angry for these very sorts of reasons. Let's explore that. Uh, when you had the opportunity to have a vote in this, what did you do with it? Uh, did you start going to church on your own? What was that like? Did you go to a youth group? Asking these sorts of questions. Now, what do you believe now? And they can start asking those questions because you know something about their their past. Uh, how do you think your dad affected this? Uh, you know, I'll use that Freud example. Uh, your dad seemed to be a pretty ugly, unloving guy. Uh, what do you what do you think of God? How do you picture him? Like, just being totally honest. How do you envision him right now? And you get some really startling conclusions and claims. I had one soldier this past week started digging into this a little bit, uh, and this is the first conversation I had with him. We talked about his broken pa- uh, background, and right toward the end, he's like, "You know, to be honest with you, I just I hate God. My background? Why wouldn't I? I hate God. Uh, I'm pissed." Uh, and I'm furious that he let all this, all this happen. I said, okay, next week, by which I mean, now I mean this week, let's have our follow follow-on conversation. And by the way, thank you for being honest. Instead of slapping Romans 8.28 on it, uh, frankly, most people who use Romans 8.28 nowadays don't even know what Romans 8.28 means. They don't even know the gospel. Everybody nowadays says prayers and positive energy coming your way. They say God has a purpose, and yet they know nothing about any of these things. These are vacuous cliches that probably out of the majority of mouths who say them, these people aren't even Christians. Don't be misled. We often assume that because people say these things, wow, they're really religious or pious. No. These are leftover slogans from the era when Christianity was more common. Uh, Most people don't mean them. Effects of these conversations. I'll just have one minute. Uh, You have these sorts of conversations. People feel loved, respected, listened to. More and more, they give you the keys to their own hearts. They are doing all the work, not you. And they are happy to hand you over the keys and say, let's get to work. People want to have these conversations, and they will love these conversations. Most of the time, they will not be antagonistic. They will not be your enemy. They will not be your sparring partner if you take the time to slowly ease your way down through basics and background. And then there's basically, it's fair game. And they will let you challenge them. I will be bold and upfront and saying you are lying to yourself right now. And they take and, you, and they'll say, you know what? I think you're right. And they let me, I'll say, you know what? Psalm 27 says, though parents may betray, the Lord will take me in. Why do you care about your parents' failure? Why are they supposed to do better than that? Why do you have that expectation? What are you looking for in this world? Why do you care about brokenness? Because we know this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Now, here's what parents are supposed to be, but I want you to know something. Behind the parent, there's the perfect father. Let's talk about him. In fact, every single counseling appointment, even with the staunchest antagonist, they let me pray for them at the end. And it's a rich, a rich, Christ-centered prayer. Is this a foolproof thing? No. Have I seen a huge mass of people come to know Christ? No. But I have dozens of soldiers with whom I am in these active conversations. I am getting to know all about them, and they are hearing the gospel, and I am not diminishing words. I'm just taking the time to love them, and I'm largely handing them the mic. I'm following them on their journey. Because ultimately, I want to get to know their story, because if we can put their story within God's story, where it can finally fit, then they've got the hope and the meaning they're looking for. Again, I know that is, I am having you drink from a fire hose. Please come to me afterwards if you have questions, thoughts, critiques. I'm always open to having my own thoughts on this modified. It's a work in progress. So thank you, as always, uh, for listening here and uh, for your feedback. Let me go ahead and say a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for time with these dear friends. Lord, we rejoice because we are gathered here because we have been saved by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. By grace, through faith in Christ, we have life and life to the full. We have hope eternal. And yet, even so, we often need these conversations ourselves. It's not just uh, outreach that right now is imperiled, but fellowship. We often are not having these conversations with each other. Again, I know the basics are beyond that. The background, the beliefs. How many of us know about our own traumas, heartaches, fears? Help us, Lord, to have deeper bonds with one another. Going down to the very root of what it is we believe and why. The very root of what it is we actually cling to and trust to. So that we can love each other better in the name of Christ. And see his name exalted before the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.